Welcome. My name is Peter Hoops, and with me today is Stephen Mafuka, a teacher of religious studies and dorm parent, among other things. Stephen has been with us since 2017, and today we're going to get a chance to catch up a little bit about his life, his background, and, and how he ended up here among us. So welcome, Stephen. All right. Thank you. It's great to be here. Tell us what you do here at St. Andrews, how you fit into our community at the moment. Well, first and uh, foremost, uh, I'm a teacher. I teach religious studies as well as uh, I teach a class called Hero's Journey. Uh, so that's part of the religion and philosophy department. One of the other outside duties outside of just teaching is just being a dorm parent. So I'm the dorm parent of the sophomore boys, half of them, Voorhees. And I'm also uh, assistant coach for uh, soccer as well as tennis. One of the questions that I know a lot of our alums and parents have is sort of the, the background that, about how, how people came to St. Andrews, how they either came to find out about it or how their journey was sort of that brought them to the school. So I can see from your bio sort of growing up in Chicago and then going to Emory and then from there going into the, the Marine Corps. Could you tell us a little bit sort of what that path was like? Yeah, so while I was in college, probably around the sophomore year, I was a major in, in, in business, business administration. And, you know, I think the thought was, is most people is, well, when you graduate college, what are you going to do? You got to be able to support yourself. And, you know, business just sounded like the, the thing to do. But it was around that time that I had a friend who was working with the Marine Corps recruiter, and he decided to do this program. It's called the um, uh, PLC program. It's where you have college students that at least one month or two months in the summertime, they go to Quantico, Virginia, and they take part in this training in order to be an officer. It's called the Officer Candidate School. And just when he came back from Officer Candidate School, one of the things that, that I noticed is just kind of this change in his demeanor. Uh, I mean, he's a good friend of mine. It was very easy for him to get sidetracked in, in academics. But he came back really transformed. I started hanging out with him and working out with him. And, you know, the Marine recruiter says, well, so why don't you think about uh, coming out? We're going to be doing a physical fitness test for the Marines where you have to run three miles, you have to do sit-ups, and then you do pull-ups. And, you know, I think I was pretty cocky at that time. I was like, okay, this is a chance to impress him because if he's impressed by my friend, then he's definitely going to be impressed by me. And I was good with the sit-ups and the, and, and, and the uh, pull-ups, but, boy, like, they kicked my butt when I came down to the, uh, the run. And I was just like, whoa, I wasn't as good as I thought I was. And I think I took that as a challenge. I was like, okay, I got to prove myself. So I started, you know, working out with them a little bit more and taking part in some of the stuff and, that they were doing. And then I decided, okay, I wanted to go to officer candidate school in the summer. So it was actually a 10-week program. There's two different ones, but I did the 10-week the, the program. And really it was just, it was at a time where I wanted a challenge. I knew deep down that I wanted to do something different and I was like, there's got to be more than life than just going out and making money. So that was the attraction, really, just to prove myself. And I think the Marine Corps, more so than any of the services, is they're really targeting that type of, of individual. And the Marine Corps basically was saying is, well, if you think you're up for the challenge, let's see what you got. And that was the difference for me, which was, for me, the Marine Corps was focused on what can you do for us, kind of like what John F. Kennedy said in his inaugural address. And so that began, I guess, my path. And then after OCS, I came back, I did my senior year, graduated, and then I was commissioned an officer, and then I started my, my military career. You did one 10-week program during one summer of, of officer candidate school between your junior and senior year in college, and 
that was all it took for you to to graduate college and already then be commissioned as an officer? Yeah, that's a process wow. for being commissioned as an officer. Right. Now, once you're done with that, then there's a whole series of training because they just don't send you out to a right. a platoon and say, <laughs> okay, go lead. But that, you know, that's the, the, the test. And in those 10 weeks, I mean, it's, it's you, you're challenged. And, not, you know, a lot yeah. of people don't make it. They fall out. They get injured, whatever it is. But is it primarily physical training? Is it sort of a basic training plus, or is it more organizational and that higher level, the officer type? Of there's the basic training aspect of it, but there's also, you know, some of the more of the leadership training as well. And not to say you don't have that it, it basic training, but one of the things about an officer is, is that kind of the focus is the management of violence. Whereas maybe in the enlisted, you have more emphasis on the application of violence, depending on the service. I say the Marine Corps does a lot more leadership at the lower level. But uh, they want to say, hey, you know, we're putting you in a position of great responsibility. Do you have the discipline? Do you have the, I guess, the knowledge? Uh, and then you, do you also have the temperament? And that's what they're testing uh, at Officer Candidate School. What kind of temperament are they looking for? For me, it's this idea of even keel. You, you know, I, I know in today's world, you know, you might have a certain image. There's words like thrown out there like male toxicity. And with the Marine Corps, what they're looking for is this concern for others. Are you a person that thinks about yourself first, or do you think about the community as well? And, you know, quickly through OCS, that's going to be evident just by the different types of tests that they have. And, you know, I don't want to go too in-depth on the different ones because that's part of the, the process, which is you're right there, everything is new. And they're able to really see where you're at. And in some ways, there is a, a breaking down, which is they are trying to get you to shed some of that, that ego, you know, just in the uniforms, the haircut, where you don't see yourself as an individual first. You see yourself as part of the group. And so there's that. But at the same time, especially with the Marine Corps, there's a big physical component, which is can you do a 20-mile hike in 60 pounds of, of gear. Can you run, you know, you know, three miles? I mean, that's a minimum, but, like, at a, within a certain time. And then can you operate with very little sleep? And that's a hard thing to do as well without having this, you know, emotional side come out of you where you're acting on impulse as opposed to wisdom and judgment. Right. That sleep one, that's a that's a stress test, really, of your ability to sort of keep it, keep it together. <laughs> exactly. And, and yeah. I would say yeah. OCS is a first, and then depending on what MOS, there's different types of tests that they do specific to that MOS. Right. Before we go forward in, in your timeline, I am curious. You said that you were at a point in college, at least compared to sort of a lot of your college classmates, as to thinking about, like, you were looking for a challenge or at least looking for something different than what most of them were. What do you think it was in your life that had you sort of looking for that opportunity to either contribute or serve or do something that didn't that didn't fit with what you saw around you? Yeah, for me, I think that's my spiritual side. I'm not necessarily saying religious side because everybody has their own religion, but I think in life everybody's called to serve at some point. When you get married and when you have a family, you're called to serve. You know, that's a time that you can't just think about yourself. You got to think about your family. You got to think about your kids. You got to think about somebody more than you. You know. Just within our society, we need people to serve their community. Otherwise, society can't function. And I think, you know, certain transition stages in life, 
there are going to be those calls. And the question is, is do you answer those calls or do you refuse because you've been patterned to do certain things? You know, motivation, I guess you could say. And, uh, you know, I think for me, it's, it's part of it was this desire to serve. But I think also part of it was this desire to see where am I at? How tough am I? And what kind of person am I really? After you, you graduate college, you're commissioned, and obviously you're going to do additional training. And I noticed in your bio notes that you were an, an infantry commander and an international affairs officer. Could you tell me what kind of roles did you have in the military and what kind of responsibilities did you have and, and sort of how, how did those play out? So really, the first, I mean, infantry is always part of your, your primary MOS, that's your military occupational skill. So really, the first four years, what happened was I was an infantry officer, you know, you're brand, brand new, 22, probably, probably about 23 after you get through your training. And then you're in charge of a platoon of 45 Marines that are looking for you for guidance, you know, 24 hours, seven days, days a week. And that was through 1995 and 1999. Are you older than them or are they older than you or is it just a mix? Well, it, it depends. Like you have some senior enlisted, like my platoon sergeant, who's kind of like my right hand person. He was probably 36 at the time, you know, five Navy achievement medals, combat tours. And the truth of the matter is, is he could have run that platoon better than me. But, you know, a good officer would realize is that, hey, this is your developmental level. You're, you're brand new. They're trying to grow you as well. And so you lean on that individual, especially if he's good, and he's developing you at the same time. And so I was fortunate because I probably had one of the just the, the best platoon sergeants you, you could imagine. And through 1995, 1999, I was part of the, the infantry unit, you know, part of a larger battalion. We would deploy to Okinawa twice to kind of be at the forefront of that area of operation, the, the Pacific area. But it was quiet. And so in 1999, I was like, you know, we, at the time, you're thinking, well, I joined the military to go fight. Everybody at that time was, you know, doing well in, in the business world. And so there was that that, that desire, well, maybe I could sh- should go out and, you know, go back to the civilian world just because we're not fighting. But I was always interested in, in studying and learning more. So that's when I decided to, to go get a master's in, in religious studies. Because my time in, in, in Okinawa, every single lunch break, I used to go into the library and I used to read about these Asian religions, Confucianism, Taoism. And I was just so interested. Like, you know, we never learned about this in the West. We would just have, you know, Socrates, you know, all the great Western thinkers. And I felt like, well, there's something missing in my education and so I wanted to learn more about Asian religions because I felt like, you know, it makes me more complete. So that's when I got out and I did a master's program up at Columbia. And right when I was done, I was thinking, okay, now I got to go support myself. You know, at that time I had a, a girlfriend uh, and I was thinking, okay, I need to, to make money because I was living up in New York and it's expensive. So I was like, well, maybe I'll, I'll go into business, get a master's in, in, in business. But then that's when September 11th happened. And it was just a wake-up call. And I, I got a call from my friend who was down in Lejeune, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. He was a Marine. And that morning he says, what is going on, going on outside? I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, go outside and look outside your window. And I was about four or five miles away, so I couldn't see anything. He goes, you know, somebody crashed a plane into the World Trade Center. And it was about probably around a 24-hour period afterwards, just reflection. I called him up and goes, man. I think we're going to probably go to war after this. I want back in. He goes, really? I'm like, yeah. He goes, here, g- 
give this uh, person a call. He was recruited down in, um, in Miami. We want back in. We're going to be taking people back in. And so that was kind of like my second uh, time in the military. And, and that's when I shifted over to international affairs, which is Latin America. Because the headquarters was Southern Command in Miami. So they had positions. So I was working down there. Became a foreign area officer because of my background in Spanish. And most of the time they were deploying me to Latin America. And I was still thinking to myself, well, you know, I came to fight. Or it came to at least go where, where, where the battle was, I guess you could say. And so I was down there, and I, you know, I eventually talking to a couple of people at headquarters, and I was able to get orders to go to Iraq. So they had a position that just opened up that day. He goes, listen, you know, the person that was supposed to replace him, because he was already in Iraq, dropped out. If you want to go, you can fill my position over in Iraq. And he was in charge of the Joint Repair Robotic Facility. So he was in charge of all EODs, Explosive Ordnance Robots in, in Iraq. So I'm like, yes, sign me up. And so I was over in, in Iraq. And I was there for six months because that was at the deployment. And, you know, they were going to send me over to Afghanistan because I promised, like, I really want to go to Afghanistan too because I just want to do everything. And... <laughs> And so they go, well, you know, at that time, Afghanistan is looking pretty good. We got this. You know, everything is good over in Afghanistan. The, the focus of the effort is Iraq. We really need you in Iraq. Are you okay with staying there an extra six months? I'm like, I was like, yeah, whatever the Marine Corps needs. And I was having so much uh, fun in, in Iraq because I think there's something to be said when you feel like you're making a difference. And what we were doing at the Joint Robotic Repair Facility is, is we were making sure that any person – that was going out in the streets, they had a robot that would be able to detect these IEDs and would also be able to to dispose of or to detonate so that we didn't have to send one of those EOD techs down there in order to retrieve it, to detonate it, and to take care of it. So right, yeah. I ended up being in Iraq for, for, for 13 months, came back down to Miami, continued the Latin American Affairs, and then I got another opportunity because I heard about a position. Another person dropped out in Afghanistan. And so I was able to do a tour in Afghanistan. I think that was wow. 2011. And then about that time, I was like, you know what? I've done everything I wanted to do in the Marine Corps. You were feeling like you were just going to be doing the same thing over and over again? I, For me, the, the excitement being forward deployed, I was able to fill. And a lot of times, you know... You're not going to be forward deployed. A lot of times you're going to be in an office. A lot of times you're going to be doing a lot of paperwork. And so I always kind of knew because I had that master's in religious studies. I was like, you know what? And I, my undergrad was history. I was like, I've been to all these places. You know, I think I, Latin America is seven or eight different places. Iraq, Afghanistan, studied in China, Japan, France. So all this part of my military career. And I was like, there's a lot of things that I've learned that I think would be good to pass on to others. And so that's when I started thinking about teaching. And so right when I got back from Afghanistan, I had about a month and a half left on my service contract. I sent out an application for teaching. And I, literally, within five minutes, I get a response back from the school is, when can you start? They were down in Miami where, where I had a home. It's like, well, I, I, it's going to take me at least a month to get down there. Like, we'll hold the position. And it was an at-risk school. So an at-risk school means is that those were, that was the location where all the students went who got kicked out who were struggling, fighting, whatever it was, to that school. And they wanted somebody with that military background in order to be, I guess, uh, a disciplinarian sure. uh, as well. And so that's when I started, and I started working at risk 
And I did that for, worked at two different schools for, for five years teaching history and, you know, absolutely loved it. But it was when I did a professional development course up at the Exeter's Humanities Institute where I learned about the Harkness model, mm-hmm. about that interaction. And that's when I started thinking, well, okay, where can I do this? Because I enjoyed the conversation rather than that rote right. memory and learning. Right. And I've always liked religion. And it was around that time there, you know, position opened up at St. Andrews. And that's when I decided, well, you know what? Let me just throw my application out. How did you find out about the St. Andrews position? I, to be honest, I, it was probably was just, you know, one of the websites, NAIS, I think it right, was. Right. But when I was over in Exeter, I was talking with the person who was in charge of the history program, and he basically kind of told me about the boarding school and how you're, you're able to, to be a dorm parent. You live with the students. And I was like, well, that's the key because working with at-risk students is – the problem that you have there is is that you're at school for maybe five hours a day. The rest, of, after that, they have to go back home, and use that home life is, is terrible. They're living in an area where there's gangs. Like, you know, a lot of people in Miami, the, every morning, the, the biggest decision they have to make is, do I, take a, do I go left to go to school, or do I go right? Because if I go left, i got to deal with this gang. If I go right, I have to deal with, with that gang. You know, that's their life. That's yeah. what they know. Yeah. And so they're coming to school because that's their moment of peace, and usually they're coming to school because there's somebody there that cares about them that they feel like they can have some sense of stability and peace. And so, you know, I've always kind of known is that the more time you can spend with an individual, the better off they are. And so I really like the idea of boarding school. You're a coach. You know, you're a dorm parent. You're with these these kids 24 hours, seven days day, days a week. You know, that's when you can have the most impact on individuals and i think with with st andrews and just the culture of kindness which is you know these students here at the school are going to go out into the community with a different mindset than probably most of the people in the world are the people that you meet at college which is they're focused on what they can do for themselves here at st andrews there's always that there's already that shift in mindset where they're thinking about how can i make the world a better place and so I think we need those leaders, and I think schools like St. Andrews specifically, I can't speak for any other school, play such a critical role in our society, in the United States specifically, and in, in making it a more equitable and a better place for, for, for everybody here. Nice. What would you say was your biggest failure, and what did you learn from it? I think my... Biggest failure, and it's, it's always hard to, to define a specific moment, but, you know, one of the things that was common when you work at an at-risk school is you work with an individual, a kid who seems to start clicking and things are working, and then the next day he doesn't come to school, and you realize and you hear, you know, from the report that, you know, he's gone. You know, he's some type of incident, gang violence, whatever it is. You know, I had two two students that you know, fell into that category at, at, at different periods of time. You know, 16 years old and both killed because of one was, was really both were, were gang violence in some way. So what happened to those two students? Did you ever well, find out or did just yeah, they stop we, we, they stopped coming? You know, so so the, the, the first one, this was, you know, it was interesting because this was before kind of like Black Lives Matter. So one of them was a Hispanic student who that day, and it was interesting because he was a student would come in and, and he would always try to come in my class, even though he was in a different class at a specific time. And 
he he was in a gang. He came to the United States when he was probably very young. His father, who was also in a gang, was killed. And so that day, we had a teacher versus uh, student basketball game, pickup game at the school. And he was the only one to show up. And, you know, just to see his excitement out there playing, like he just felt like he was at peace. And so that night, we, uh, I guess that night he was out at a store. He had a gun on him. He was in a, a convenience store. The person in the convenience store behind the desk saw that, pressed the emergency button. The cop came, and, you know, the cop basically says, you know, hands up. I guess he didn't put up his hands up right away. And there was a cop fired, and he died. And so next morning we hear about when we had a faculty meeting, this is what happened to that student. A couple of days later, we're clearing out his area, his, his desk, and one of the first things that he did for that first day of school was to write out just kind of like a little goals. And one of the questions was, where do you see yourself in 10 years? And his response was, I just want to be in a safe place. And you think about it was that night he was at a safe place, but he had to go back home. He was part of a game because he had no father. He needed some type of community. Yeah. And let's be honest, like many of these communities, there's not the resources. There's no types of places for these kids to go to right after school. The parents are working. Uh, the mother, in this case, is, is working, you know, two jobs. Yeah. And the streets get them. Yep. And so that's their reality. And, and, you know, I think for me, that's – I always you always question yourself, what could you have done more? Like, could you have gotten to know this individual more? You know, could you maybe taught him something where he wouldn't have put himself in that situation where it's much more likely something bad's going to happen? So that's kind of like what you're always worrying about. You, there's always this fear of, did I do enough, you know, as a teacher in order to, to make sure that before they transition to the next stage in life, they've got enough knowledge to be successful and to be safe. I'm not sure I'd call that a failure. I mean, I know what you mean, but that's like, that's, I mean, just the fact that you were reaching out to those students is, is a triumph, I think. Let's jump forward here to 2020. What's one thing you've learned from the pandemic about how to live? And do you see any silver linings from 2020? You know, it's interesting because right now all of our students have just finished the chapel talk. And there was a theme about, you know, where they're at in this moment in terms of their own spiritual growth. And I, I would probably agree with with one with, with what one of the students basically said, which is life is is fragile. When you, especially when you're young, you don't tend to even think about it. You think you're invulnerable, but as you get older, you realize you're vulnerable, and other people around you are as well. And I think for me, it's this idea that every single day in your interactions with others, are you making a positive impact on another person's life? Because we're here for a short period of time, and that's what I want to be remembered for. You know, not so much if I, you know, make a million dollars or, or, you know, become the president of the United States. You know, at the end of the day, when people talk about you, will they say positive things like, he always made me feel better. And I think if you do that, then you've lived a successful life that you can be proud of and that, you know, you're ready 
whatever it is your religious belief is if it's the next stage or if it's just to be fertilizer for plants you can do it without any regret and you think that's something that maybe our students realize over the past you know 14 months that is more they're more aware of that now than they might have been otherwise and I, I think that the headmaster here is, is that's kind of where he's geared his message to which is you know you think about this pandemic don't think about yourself. You're young, but there's others around you. There's there's a faculty. There's there's staff. You know they have to go home. They are the ones that are at risk. There's your the grandmothers. So what you do matters because we know that they have those connections naturally with with others. So if they can think about what are the consequences of not wearing a mask, what are the consequences of not social distancing? Well, they're drastic because. The reality of the fact is, is in one year, we've lost more people than we lost in World War II. So in your teaching, without going into the specifics of all your individual classes, what do you want your legacy to be? How do you want to be remembered? Or what do you want students to say about you after they graduate, just based on your time, your general time here, in all of your capacities? You know, probably someone of what the Greeks would say, did the person live with passion? I enjoy, I especially enjoy teaching mythology, because that's what I used to read all the time. Religion, I would say for me, is in many ways, is that close extension to it. You know, when I'm in the classroom, do the students think, boy, he really loves mythology. They might not necessarily love it as much as I do, but they say there's something that Mr. Bafuka loves 100%. I need to find what that is in my life to pursue. And I think uh, that's what I probably would like to be remembered for. Excellent. I think that's a, a great a great perspective. Okay, so these rest of these questions are pretty short answer, meant to be on the spot. So here we go, right? It's the, the lightning round, as they say. What is your favorite spot on campus? Oh, I, I probably would say the Garth. You know, for me, there's there's something there. All right. What is your favorite dish in the dining hall? Uh, it's, it's amazing because it's been so long since we've had <laughs> it. But when they do a family dinner and they do salmon, yeah, and, I mean, that's, that's, that's my favorite. Somehow they, they're able to get salmon. It's a hard dish, but they get it nice and juicy and moist, so yeah. it's good. Yeah, it's a favorite of a lot of our students, too. Is it? What, in your couple of years here, in, you know, just a sentence or two, do you have a most memorable moment? Something specific that stands out that that you know you you'll take with you when you leave. I think graduation. You know, I would say last graduation, the fact that we weren't able to do it in person, but we did it virtual, with the same sense of energy and connection. That will that was special for me. You know, and because you want it, you know, a student who's been here for four years, they need to make that transition. There's certain rites of passage that you have to have. Yep. And to be able to pull it off and still feel like we were able to do it correctly, that's what it probably I remember so far the most that stands out. What's your favorite topic or your favorite lesson? Do you have one that sort of you always get really jazzed about? You know, I, to be honest, I think it's one of those, it's when I'm asked a question and your response is, it's kind of like all of a sudden it's like you become possessed and like some type of God enters you and you just start going and the students are like, how does he know what he knows? That's kind of like for me, that's where I feel best. It's not so much a, 
you know, because you can plan a lesson. You can think this is a great lesson. Then when you go, you're like, ah, it just didn't connect. But just when you're in that moment where, you know, it's kind of like you're, you're in the groove and the spirit moves you uh, and you're responding and you're like, you, you know that that lesson was a good lesson. Do you have a favorite a piece of music or artwork or something artistic that really you, you're drawn to? Music, you know, I I like classical or, or Baroque music, and I really like Bach. Okay. Like Bach's air, you know, that probably, or Jesus' Joy of Man's Desire by, by Bach. There's something about that, like from a meditation standpoint, where it just puts me in the right place. I also like Vivaldi's uh, Four Seasons, because what I like about that is just the idea that there's these changes Mm -hmm. seasons and i just like that that kind of image and that metaphor and and you just feel like when you hear the music like you you see the rain you feel it probably those three pieces anything anything baroque i'm a big fan of could you use three words to describe yourself deep thinker calm and spiritual all right last one What's one piece of advice you would give to someone looking to pursue a career in, say, your academic area? Again, I'd probably go with what the Greeks say is, is first you got to know yourself. Know what it is that you love and what you enjoy doing, and then just go ahead and pursue it. I mean, I, I can't say what that might, might be, but in my case, it's not doing what you think society expects you to do, but do deep down whether it's in your unconscious where you know this is what is going to make you happy. And do it. Because I think the way the world works is you'll find a way to survive, to to make income, and you also will be happy and you'll live with no regrets. I think that's a perfect place to end it. All right. Stephen, thank you very much. Peter, thank you.